going to open back up to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. The last time we spoke on this, we made it down through the 14th verse, where Jesus is laying out the first kind of stages of the impending destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. That ends about chapter 24, verse 14. And in that section, we discuss the kind of bleakness of the situation, but woven into that bleakness was the promise that Jesus gave that this gospel shall be preached to all nations um, as a sign and a testimony and a witness against them and for them. So we were looking at that and, and, and discussing the proximal interpretations and the distal interpretations of that. You have the proximal interpretation of the coming destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. You have the distal interpretation that this gospel is going to continue on. So even though you see this proximal destruction that's going to come and you as a Jewish population are going to be losing your mind thinking that this is the end of the world, Jesus says, Paul's pump the brakes. Number one, this is just the beginning of sorrows. There's going to be more to come. But then number two, hold to the fact that you are part of a big, amazing story that's going to continue past this immediate bleakness. It also is a promise to us as we continue to fast forward 2,000 years and go, okay, how do we fit into this story? Where do we fit into this big, amazing story that Jesus has been talking about? Well, we are continuing this kingdom movement of preaching the gospel and being a part of that promise that Christ gave that it would be preached in all nations. Now you'd say there's plenty of nations that have come and gone over the last 2,000 years, okay? There's plenty of, of, of institutions that have come and gone over the last 2,000 years. When, you know, some people will take that verse and say, okay, well, if we can just get it to enough people, boom, we have started the end times, okay? What we're going to find here in 24 is that Jesus says, actually, I don't even know when this end time is. So that would eliminate our ability to kickstart the motor on the end times, okay? But also, it's that's not the point of it. The point is not, okay, here's your checklist. If you'll just get this accomplished, then I can come back. Because he's not waiting on our permission. Amen. The point that Jesus was giving was, look, it's going to get bad. In fact, it's probably going to get worse. And not only will the Jews hate you, but then all nations are going to hate you. And there's going to be a lot of bad stuff going on. But here's what I want you to hold to. You are my witness. In every nation and every tongue and every tribe and every place around the world, you are my witness. And you're going to be my witness to every nation until that time comes when I decide it's done. Okay? You're my witness. So it started in Matthew chapter 5 with you are my salt, you are my light in a dark, dark world. And he's coming here to the end saying you are my witness. I'm choosing you and calling you and purposing you for this purpose, to be my witness in all nations until the time comes to an end. You are always going to be there with my gospel in my kingdom, proclaiming my name, my goodness, my righteousness, my perfectness, my holiness, my peace, my joy, my long-suffering, all these things. You are my witness in every nation till the world comes to an end. I've made it that way. Now, 
He goes forward then to then continue on and kind of describe some more things that are going to happen. And again, these are circulating around this idea of a proximal and a distal interpretation. He goes into verse 15 and says, When you see, therefore, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then, if you ever want like a little glimpse, too, of the writers, okay, the writers writing Jesus' words, that's a good verse right there to see kind of this dynamic, all right? Because you'll see that's in parentheses, okay? And the whosoever readeth, let him understand is Matthew, as he's writing this, going, this is what Jesus said. Now, y'all, the author is saying, read this. Take this into consideration. Think about this. Consider what is being said here. Understand what the prophet is saying and how Jesus, the greater prophet... Okay, is telling you this. Okay, it's a it's a beautiful connection. All right, this is one of those weird, crazy moments where you've got you've got Daniel, hundreds of years before Christ, making a prophecy. Christ taking that prophecy and saying, "Guys, it's about to happen." That's a second a second reiteration or a second iteration, I guess you should say, which is a reiteration of the original. Okay. And Matthew, who's writing this gospel some, you know, as you would perceive by historical accounts, some 20 or 30 years after Christ said this, one, two, three, you have all this put together. And that's why he says there, consider, let the reader consider. Because when Christ was speaking this, it wasn't written. Ergo, there could not be a reader. All right. So it's a, it's a, be- it's a weird thing. I mean, that's an interesting thing to me when you just think about it in the context of a living, breathing document. That the word of God is, that the Bible is. You have stages that have just happened here in this one verse. Okay, I'll get off my geek trip there for a minute. Then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child at that day who are based, or who are breastfeeding in that day. And pray you that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you this before. Wherefore, if you shall say to if, if they shall say to you, behold, he is in the desert or in the wilderness, go not forth. Behold, he is in a secret chamber. Believe it not. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the vultures be gathered together. Now, this whole section is describing this moment that's about to happen. He's saying there's going to be this time, this thing that's going to happen, and you need to be aware of it, and you need to stand watch for it. And here's what's going to kind of come before it, and that should be your clue, okay? Now, again, it's interesting because this section of Scripture, as we break these out section by section, this section of Scripture has both proximal and, in my opinion, distal interpretations wrapped up within it, okay? 
There's a very proximal one that is, again, speaking directly to the destruction at AD 70, and we're going to look at some things in that that could only be relevant to that event, okay? But there's some other things mixed in here that you're going, okay, well, I can see how that would be AD 70, but I could also see how that would not be AD 70, okay? So here Jesus continues this discourse on the end of Jerusalem and the end of time, okay? And what you see brought up in this, it's a very specific, interesting kind of tie-in, is this phrase, when you see the abomination of desolation, okay? That's not just a, a cute Matthew phrase, all right? That is an ancient Daniel phrase. And what you notice is there's this, this kind of tie-back, this going back to Daniel. There's going to be a couple of chapters in Daniel that kind of make reference to this. But in particular, in Daniel chapter 9, you have it actually mentioned about the Messiah that's going to come, okay? So here he says, when you see this abomination of desolation that's set up, you need to start taking notice, Okay, well, what is the abomination of desolation? Good question, okay? Nobody actually has a 100% definite idea of what it is, all right? There's a couple of different occasions when this phrase is used. Even when you go back into Daniel's book, again, Daniel's prophesying about a lot of stuff. He's, he's talking about proximal things as well. He's also talking about distal things, just like Isaiah does. Isaiah talks about a proximal destruction of Jerusalem and Israel. He's also talking about some very, very distant stuff that's going to come, a kingdom where no tears are shed and lions and lambs lay down together. All that didn't happen in AD 30, okay? So there's some things that have happened proximally and distally in Isaiah, proximally and distally in Daniel. Here, Daniel in chapter 9 makes this this statement. Chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Okay? That's a proximal thing that's going to happen. That was the rebuilding of the temple. That's Nehemiah's book. You know, that's, that's all that. Okay? Unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The streets shall be built again in the wall, even troubled times, troublous times. You know, whatever that word is. And after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, and not, but not for himself. Again, talking about Jesus, talking about Jesus being killed for his people, not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war of desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that phrase there, abomination, he shall be make it desolate, is the phrase, the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that makes desolate. And when you look at kind of the Hebrew and what he's explaining there, basically meaning, upon the battlements shall the, the idols of the desolator be placed. Okay? So that's a lot. You, we're, we cannot get into Daniel. Okay? And that's why I don't think we should do it on a Bible study either, because good gracious. You just, in that one section, you're going, okay, who and what and where and when and why, okay? What is being talked about here? What I want you to grab from it is this. Daniel in chapter 9 is prophesying of an event tied to the Messiah, but also tied to a proximal interpretation, where you're going to have something, which he describes there as the idols 
are going to be put on the battlements. And what he's talking about there is that there's going to be idolatry placed back in the temple, okay, is, is the gist of it, all right? There could, probably, there could probably be some very deep things that, that take root in all this too, but the gist, natural, practical implication to this is that you're going to have a pagan ruler stick pagan idols in the temple, cause the sacrifice to cease, and therefore you have made it desolate, okay? You have voided the holiness of the temple, and you have desolated and desecrated the sacrifice, all right? That's what's going on. Now, there was some historical, and, and that's one section of it. Daniel chapter 11 also kind of makes reference to it, but what you see is that in around 156, I think, or 167 BC, there was a Roman emperor who was Antiochus Epiphanes who set up a statue for himself in the temple. That was one kind of proximal interpretation of this. You then fast forward into Jesus' day, and around AD 60, AD 70, you had the placement of the Roman eagle, which was the eagle of Jupiter, okay, in the Roman temple and around the Roman temple. And you had the Roman soldiers that were occupying the land. Now, AD 66, AD 70 was this occupation war of Jerusalem kind of time frame, okay? When the Jews rose up in rebellion against Rome and Rome came in and, and um, in, surrounded, whatever that's called, sieged, see, besieged the city and trapped everyone in it. Well, the Roman soldiers that were within it started doing sacrifices in the holy areas to Jupiter, to the Romans. So there's these kind of ties to this idolatrous worship being placed in the temple area, all right? And what, what Jesus is kind of telling the people here is when you see these things happen, then the people of Judea need to flee to the mountains. Now, again, why that's important is because you didn't see the people of Jerusalem specifically mentioned to flee to the mountains. Number one, in actuality, they're besieged. There's not really a way for them to flee to the mountains. Number two, though, is you have the surrounding lands that were going to be desecrated as well. That the Roman army was so riled up and mad about what the Jews were doing in Jerusalem, they actually destroyed the city and then went out on kind of like a berserker's raid and tore all of it up, okay? So Jesus is kind of giving a warning to his people. When you see these things start to happen, you need to run, okay? You need to flee. Now, again, this is all tying to a proximal interpretation A.D. 66 to 70, when ultimately everything was wiped out, okay? So that is the proximal, close, you know, close revelation of this prophecy, okay? And you have these kind of periods here with this great tribulation that was going to come. And this is also, which I didn't grab it, but this, this section of time with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, that whole time frame of the siege, okay, from 66 to 70, all right. That whole time frame was an awful period in the history of the Jews in Jerusalem. Okay, That's where you get historical accounts from Josephus and from Old Testament prophecies where it talked of the, the people who inhabited Jerusalem at that point in time eating their own children. Okay, That happened in that period. All right. That's why he says this is going to be a tribulation and a disaster that has not happened since the time of the world beginning till this point, nor ever would. Okay. Now that's all. That's all language to describe the magnitude of devastation that was going to go on here. Okay. And you can go back and you can read. There's a really great book 
um, that I had read that was uh, a biography of Jerusalem. It is huge, okay? And I had to listen to, the, to it on audiobook and try not to fall asleep while I was driving. Um, but there, when you come up to this section of time in, the, in this biography of Jerusalem, it's a really interesting historical account of everything that went on. There's a lot of factions and things that were involved with this. Um, and so that it's a really interesting take that you may, you know, you want to, if you want to get good and historical, then go back and read something like that. It gives you a really good perspective on it, but it also highlights all the devastation, the destruction, and just the, the, the really bad stuff that went on during it. He tells them though, when you see these things coming, flee. So Jesus is giving them a warning. He's saying, notice what's about to happen. Watch for it. Okay? He closes this section of scripture saying, where the carcass is, there were the eagles or the vultures gather. Okay? So just like when we drive down the road and we see a bunch of vultures hanging out in the middle of the road, we know they're not there eating a salad. You know, they're eating a dead animal, right? Okay? So he's giving that example. He's saying, these things are not going to be hidden from you. Now, you may not know the time. You're not going to be able to like work your astrological clocks and come up with a date. He said, but there's going to be a time that this happens, and this is what I want you to notice. Just like you can see that there's a dead animal because vultures are gathering, you're going to be able to see the vultures of these prophecies start circling, and at that point in time, you should know you need to get out of here. Okay? When, in particular, when you see the abomination of desolation or what we're interpreting that as the idolatrous worship of pagan gods reestablished in the temple, you need to take watch because something bad's about to come. And don't say I didn't warn you, okay? So that's what he's speaking of at this point. And then he gets into talking about tell the person who's on the housetop, don't come back down. Tell the person in the field, don't go back in. You know, all these things. He's giving kind of this immediate, emergent uh, request. You don't need to, to dilly-dally, for lack of a better term, with this time. Okay? When you see these things happen, forget what you got, pack up and run, or else you're not going to survive this. Okay? I think it's interesting, and another thing that points to the proximity of this event, okay, is number one, he specifically mentions Judea. He didn't say all the world. This can't be talking about some kind of futuristic end time thing, because he, why would he just say Judea, all right? He's localizing to this area, because this is the area that's about to get trashed and burned, okay? The other thing is that, notice he says, I hope your flight doesn't come in winter nor on the Sabbath day, okay? Which would indicate that the Sabbath day rest was still in play at this point, which would mean that you wouldn't be allowed to flee on that day because it's the Sabbath day. So I hope it doesn't come then. Now again, Jesus is saying these things. We know Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, but he's giving this kind of phraseology to these Jews saying, look, this is how immediate, this is how necessary it is for you to get out of town. Okay, But you can see how it's tied proximally and to a Jewish population particularly because he's talking about the Sabbath and he's talking about Judea. All right, This is going to be something that happens in the coming years. And we tie this to the destruction in AD 70. But as you go further down into this, there's some other key interesting points. First off is you notice that there is a purposeful preservation of the elect Jews on two different accounts in this section of Scripture. Okay? Number one, he says that they're preserved from death okay? because he's going to you know, kind of cut the work short. Okay? Cut the event short. The destruction that's coming is going to be shortened. If those days were not shortened, then no one would have survived. He said, but for the elect's sake, they are going to be shortened. 
All right. And this ties to another phrase that is used in, in Romans chapter 9 that we're going to look at. But he makes the point to say this event would have been a total sum loss. Okay. God's righteous, indignant justice against these unbelieving Jews, okay, for what they did to Christ, would have been total, would have been complete. He was not going to leave one stone upon another. He was going to burn everything to the ground. This was going to be an absolute, as it said, Sodom and Gomorrah kind of situation. Okay? But you notice and you remember that with Sodom and Gomorrah, what was the plea by, by Abraham? If you can find one righteous man, will you still do it? That's what it came down to. If you find t- 100, you know, he went down the whole list. And God said, yeah, if, I can, if there's one in there, I'll stop. And obviously, wasn't the case. But here he goes, look at the elect that I have. I have, a, I have elect people in these Jews. I have elect here. I have a people that I am purposefully and willfully preserving in this manner. And if it wasn't for them, it would all be lost. I would have wiped everything out. We would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah, meaning we would have been completely and utterly destroyed. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 9. And if you flip over there, we talked about this and have talked about this in the last three or four chapters about the tie-in between the Jews in Romans chapter 9 and in these Matthew 22, 23, 24, and 25. In Romans chapter 9... He makes the point, starting to be, I guess, quick about it. Um, starting in verse 25, he's, or in verse 24, he says, Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Osei, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. That's talking about the Gentiles. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. That's a statement of though there were a, there was, by the promise that he gave to Abraham, he was going to raise up a people that were numerous to the amount that they numbered as the sand of the seas and the stars of the skies. He says, though they were this number, only a remnant shall be saved. Okay. Now, there is other implications that will go along with this, but one of the direct implications, as he's about to kind of explain more, is as you will see here in Matthew chapter 24, there's a remnant that was saved. The rest were killed. All right? So here he goes, the remnant shall be saved, for he will finish the work. Well, what work is he speaking of? We're not talking about an end-time work, okay? The work he is speaking of is... In practical and proximal and practical applications is speaking of what's happening here in Matthew chapter 24. He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and Gomorrah. What shall we say then that the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have attained the righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained the law of righteousness. 
Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, that's Jesus, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever shall believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, the works that are going on here, what he's talking about is saying, I'm going to preserve my remnant, my elect out of these people. Okay. Here he says that. I'm going to cut the work short. Here in 24 he says, if it weren't for the fact that these elect were here that I'm preserving, I wouldn't have cut the work short. I would have finished the job. Okay. He says, but because I have my people here, I'm not going to destroy them. Okay. So he goes on and says, you know, we're going to cut the work short. We're going to, um, be, if it had not been for the elect, the days, then we would have been as Sodom as Gomorrah. And so he says that the elect here are preserved from this destruction. He made it so that they were preserved from the destruction that was at Jerusalem. The second thing that he makes it preserved from is he makes them preserved from the false professors and messiahs that would come after Christ. Okay? So again, another kind of divine preservation he gives where he says, if it were possible, in so much that if it were possible, they would even be able to deceive the elect. Okay, so two preservations he gives here where he is preserving his elect people in this area. Now, what's kind of, I think, should be amazing and comforting about that is that when you're noticing all this, when you're looking at this bleakness of this situation and going, okay, this seems like a really bad place to be. This seems like God is really wreaking havoc in these areas. This seems like there's no hope. This seems, I mean, all this stuff that we've gotten starting at the beginning of chapter 24. You, you continue to see how God is not in any way abandoning his people. Okay, And he's not leaving us to this hopeless despair that there's no way out of this. That wars are going to happen. Rumors of wars are going to happen. Disaster, destruction. Jerusalem's going down. The occupying army is going to make the abomination of desolation. The city is going to be wiped out. All these people are going to be destroyed. Where do we stand in this? Well, you see God's continued preserving hand with his people. He said, yeah, there's going to be destruction, but I'm going to cut it short for my people's sake. Yeah, there's going to be false messiahs, and I want y'all to be aware of them. Notice how he kind of, he, he makes the preservation along with a warning, okay? He says, I want you to notice that in those days after that, there's going to be people saying, oh, here's the Christ, and there's the Christ, and come, he's coming out of the wilderness. That was a, a Jewish kind of traditional thought that the Messiah was going to come out of the wilderness just like John the Baptist did. Or he's going to be found in secret. Hey, come here. Jesus is hiding with me. We found him. He's down here in the cellar. We need to go see. You know, those kind of things that he says these false messiahs were going to be prophesying. He says, don't believe them. Don't trust them. Don't rely on them. Let me break a little secret to you guys. The way that I'm going to come back is like the lightning coming out of the east. It's going to be very visible, highly visible. You're not going to miss me. So don't be deceived by these false prophets. If you could be deceived, don't be deceived. Take warning against this deception. Note that I've already warned you that when people start asking you to do these things, just recognize I've already told you they're going to do it. And remember that I told you that I am the creator God of the universe. And when I come back, it ain't going to be in secret. It's not going to be in hidden means. It's not going to be like a man walking out of the wilderness. I'm coming like the lightning out of the east with power, with authority, and immense visibility. 
Now, we don't have time to dive into that this morning, but that's where I kind of want to pause and leave you, okay? The, the way he is describing this scene is pretty bleak, but what we understand is that God says, even in all this bleakness, I still have my people that I am taking care of. Don't worry about it, okay? Just take my warnings. Heed what I've said, flee when you see this, understand and don't believe these false disciples and false messiahs because I've already told you they're going to do it and I've told you how I'm going to come. So don't be deceived by any of that, but don't be in despair because I haven't left you. I haven't abandoned you. This is not anything that's coming out of the side wind that I didn't see. In fact, I'm telling you all these things so you will be aware of them and that even in the bleakness of the situation, you as my preserved, protected, elect, remnant people will continue to be the witness that I have purposed you to be. So as you're running and fleeing from Judea, just like you would call with the gospel and say, flee from the immorality, flee from the destruction, flee from the persecution of the devil and the world. In that same kind of allegorical way as I'm telling you to flee from Judea because these natural destructions that are going to happen. Then you be my witness on that road while you're running out of town and everybody's going, why are you running? Well, because my Messiah told me that when I saw this, I needed to get out of town. Oh, by the way, let's talk about the gospel. Come on, we'll run out of town together. And let me tell you about the witness that Christ has given me. Let me tell you about what he said about these times and what was going to happen. Let me tell you about the hope that he gave us that this was not going to be the end. And let me tell you about the true Messiah, the only one that's ever been. That's the, that's the kind of unction that he gave his people in this section of scripture. And it should encourage us in the same way. Though we look around and go, man, things look pretty bleak. We can remember God, God has still got this and still got us. And is still watching out after us and still, and still driving and directing and protecting us. And is still commanding us that even in all this bleakness, you are the people I called to be my witness. And may God bless us to do that.